Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. My friends, y'all know how this week's Torah portion ends. Shlach Lecha in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, means send out scouts, referring to God's command to Moses to send scouts into the land of Israel to determine what the land is like and to see for themselves if it's inhabitable, conquerable, or not. One scout from each tribe came back. Ten with discouraging reports about the inhabitants of the land, about the land itself. When the people hear all the negative reporting, they break out crying. They wish they hadn't spent all that time in the wilderness. They even talk, believe it or not, about going back to slavery in Egypt as a better option than crossing into the promised land to Israel. Finally, two of the scouts, Joshua And Caleb silenced the other 10 and their negativity. Yes, Joshua and Caleb admit the land is scary, but they add, we can conquer it and build a good life in this land sworn to our ancestors. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, God condemns that entire generation of the wilderness to die. You'll recall that the Torah ends with Moses seeing the land of Israel but not entering it. Joshua will lead the people into a complicated land flowing with milk and honey and very different peoples. The land where this summer, this is how you know how the story ends. Nearly 3,000 years later, many of our temple teens and Rabbi Dreyfus himself are right now in the land of Israel, the spiritual homeland of the Jewish people, where all of us will hopefully journey someday as our Jewish birthright, if you haven't already. In this week's Torah portion, and after listing the names of the 12 who who will scout the land, there's a curious detail that's added, a name change. Moses changes the name of the representative of the tribe of Ephraim, follow me, from Hosea son of Nun to Joshua, or in the Hebrew from Hoshea to Yehoshua. The difference is one Hebrew letter added, Yud, which stands for the name of God. So, Hosea, Hosea's new name, Joshua, 
Yehoshua means God will save. That's the name change for that scout. And the greatest biblical commentator, Rashi, interprets this to mean, may God save you, Joshua, from the malign influence of the 10 negative scouts who were naysayers. May God save you. My Jerusalem Hebrew Union College rabbinical school classmate who was so smart that he jumped from the American program to the Israel program. He moved to Israel. He became professor and provost of the Hebrew Union College. He cites another commentator with another read on that additional letter, which has the value of 10, right? Yud. Rabbi Chaim ben Atur, born in 1696 in Morocco, agrees with Rashi that Joshua was going to present an unpopular minority opinion against the consensus view of 10 spies, so he needed to be armed with the power to stand up against the 10. But it's the next explanation that is so surprising and timely. It's not, this explanation adds, that Yehoshua, Joshua, only needed firepower to overcome his 10 opponents. Rather, he was gaining strength from the virtues of those 10, drawing power from his opponents. In other words, opinions with which we disagree are not only to be defeated, they deserve engagement and attention. Joshua was given the strength both to stand up for his own principles and to gain strength from the views of others. As my classmate and professor puts it, there are times when injustice and cruelty demand our unambiguous opposition. There are also times when complex issues warrant multifaceted discourse. So Hosea's name is changed to Joshua to give us the capacity to stand up for our values even when they run against the grain and also the ability to hear different views and find the best within them. It is so much easier to demonize the other, stoke hatred, inspire fear. It's so much easier to do that than to listen to others. On this Shabbat, for the first time since 1994, lives will be saved from federal legislation to reduce the epidemic of gun violence. And while this bipartisan gun safety bill may fail um, to ban any weapons or fall short of what one party or polls show most Americans want to see, this amounts to the most significant collective federal legislation to address gun violence. And as with so many other topics, this too is a complex issue, warranting multifaceted discourse. It's easy to paint parents of dead children from mass shootings as wanting to take lawfully obtained guns away, just as some on the far left paint all gun owners as worshiping their guns over the lives of children. But the, chil the truth is not that, it's neither. 
Virtually all gun owners support safety measures and background checks on gun owners. And many of the most vociferous supporters of common sense gun legislation have no desire to stop gun ownership from law-abiding and mentally sane people. What that legislation, I believe it was passed today, I haven't watched the news, shows is that it is possible to stand up for change while listening to others. And beyond the public sphere in our professions and private lives, whenever we have an uphill battle to affect positive change, especially when we feel powerless in seeing the promised land, let's say the promised land is safety, health, living peacefully in the land of Israel itself. We need that extra letter God gave Yehoshua, Joshua, for the power and strength to stand up against the 10, as well as using that power to gain strength from the virtues of whoever opposes your view and draw power from them. COVID has only heightened the social bubbles, all the bubbles. COVID is like one big bubble factory. There are social bubbles, there are religious bubbles, there are professional bubbles. Echo chambers get power instead of getting out of our bubbles and hearing what others have to say in their own words, including people who harbor views and live lives you do not share. I was honored to represent Memphis and Temple Israel and the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism in the Poor People's Campaign last Saturday. During my 27 hours, it was a total 27-hour trip to Washington, I blew the shofar at the Shabbat service, launching the largest gathering of low-income workers in United States history. But I mostly listened that day to the stories of hardworking people from all 50 states, white, black, female, male, trans, young, old, who through no fault of their own can't catch a break and are among 140 million poor, low-income people in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. I am not poor, but that doesn't absolve me or any of us from standing alongside the poor and most vulnerable members of our society that's what the Torah and Judaism say over and over. Do not slander or stereotype the poor. Listen to their cries, even though it's much easier to enjoy a weekend away at the beach or away from the reality that 140 million Americans face every day. And while the working poor have no political base, they have no power base, to achieve their goal of a safe, simple, healthy life. This was the cause Martin Luther King was most passionate about when he was assassinated here in Memphis. In fact, he was headed to Washington for what he called this Poor People's Campaign, a moral revival for America's future. By the way, if you didn't know this, King was materially comfortable. He lived in a nice part of Atlanta, but his moral conscience made him feel not guilty, but ashamed to live his good life in Atlanta. 
while too many of his fellow citizens, regardless of color, were living in dire poverty all over America. He never made it to Washington from Memphis in 1968, but what's so sad is that the number of peaceful, hardworking, and low-income and poor people and families from Kansas and Nebraska to Tennessee and Arizona, I heard all 50 states, each one told one and a half minute story. The number is greater in 2022 than in 1968. I sat near an articulate son from Buffalo whose mother was murdered by the white nationalist assassin in that grocery store. He pointed out his rant wasn't about gun control. He wasn't political. He pointed out that there was no other place for black people in that part of Buffalo to pick up something on the way home like his working mom was doing before being mowed down at the grocery store. The white mom next to me from Minnesota has three children like me. Only after her husband left her when the kids were young, she worked two and a half low-paying jobs just to pay rent, clothes, and food for her children. And she wasn't able to be a mom. She was never there. And then there was the woman from Flint, Michigan, who rocked my world as I have been lamenting gas prices. Gas prices, she asked. The question for my neighborhood is not how can we afford unleaded gas for $4. The question is, how can we afford unleaded water for $4? 100,000 people in Flint who ingested lead water and are suffering from its lifelong effects. It's just the tip of the iceberg. You can't live without clean water, especially in summer heat. And not everyone can afford the bottled water in my home refrigerator. I listened. It wasn't an opposing view. These were people like me who lived completely different lives. How did Joshua and Caleb, the powerless few, outnumbered two to 10, change the course of the Jewish people who were ready to give up and die in the wilderness or go back to Egypt in slavery over a life of uncertainty? They both led and they listened. That's what the rabbis say. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, wrote, and this is important for us, if you feel despair, hope is not a passive state. Hope is an active endeavor. Every time a person does something to improve the world or takes a stand against injustice or changes the course of the society in which you live in any way, he or she not only experiences hope, but creates it. Alongside Tennessee religious leaders last Saturday, I saw with my own eyes and heard in my own ears the creation of hope through the courage and resilience of heartbroken people and their gut-wrenching stories to improve our collective society by entering it rather than withdrawing from it. What both America and Israel must do, now that the Israeli government, in case you didn't know, has collapsed as of two days ago, with a fifth election in three and a half years scheduled for October, 
what both America and Israel must do is listen more by meeting people where they are, not where we place others, by hearing what others have to say in their own words, not on our social media channels or phones. Messy as the land of Israel is that the 10, pi, ten spies said, no way. You know the end of the story. We created the land of the hope. Hatikva. Both in Israel and America. But only if we will it. Ken Yiratzon. So may it be. Amen.